Chapter 17 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 17 Bivouac. There are four ways in which travelers who are thrown upon their own resources may house themselves. They may bivouac, that is to say, they may erect a temporary shelter of a makeshift character, partly from materials found on the spot and partly from the claws they may happen to possess. They may build a substantial hut, which of course takes a good deal of labor to complete. They may use sleeping bags, or they may pitch a regular tent, I will speak of these four methods of encamping, the bivouac, the hut, the sleeping bag, and the tent, in that order. General Remarks Bivouacking is miserable work in a wet or unhealthy climate, but in a dry and healthy one there is no question of its superiority over tenting. Men who sleep habitually in the open breathe fresher air and are more imbued with the spirit of wild life than those who pass the night within the stuffy enclosure of a tent. It is an endless pleasure to lie half awake, watching the stars above and the picturesque groupings of the encampment round about, and to hear on all sides the stirrings of animal life, and later in the night, when the fire is low and servants and cattle are asleep, and there is no sound but of the wind and of an occasional plaintive cry of wild animals, the traveller finds himself in that close communion with nature which is the true charm of wild travel. Now all this pleasure is lost by sleeping in a tent. Tent life is semi-civilization and perpetuates its habits. This may be illustrated by a simple trait. A man who has lived much in bivouacs, if there be a night alarm, runs naturally into the dark for safety, just as a wild animal would but a man who travels with tents becomes frightened when away from its lights or from the fancied security of its walls. In a dangerous country there can be no comparison between the hazard of a tent and that of a bivouac. In the former a man's sleep is heavy, he cannot hear nearly so well, he can see nothing, his cattle may all decamp, while marauders know exactly where he is lying and may make their plans accordingly. They may creep up unobserved and spear him through the canvas. The first Napoleon had a great opinion of the advantages of bivouacking over those of tenting. He said it was the healthier of the two for soldiers. Shelter from the Wind Study the form of a hare. In the flattest and most unpromising of fields, the creature will have availed herself of some little hollow to the lee of an insignificant tuft of grass, and there she will have nestled and fidgeted about till she has made a smooth, round, grassy bed, compact and fitted to her shape, where she may curl herself snugly up and cower down below the level of the cutting night wind. Follow her example. A man, as he lies upon his mother earth, is an object so small and low that a screen of eighteen inches high will guard him securely from the strength of a storm. A common mistake of a novice lies in selecting a tree for his camping place, which spreads out nobly above, 
but affords no other shelter from the wind than that of its bare stem below. It may be that as he walks about in search of shelter, a mass of foliage at the level of his eye, with its broad shadow, attracts him, and as he stands to the leeward of it, it seems snug, and therefore, without further reflection, he orders his bed to be spread at the foot of some tree. But as soon as he lies down on the ground, the tree proves worthless as a screen against the wind. It is a roof, but it is not a wall. The real want in blowy weather is a dense, low screen, perfectly wind-tight, as high as the knee above the ground. Thus, if a traveler has to encamp on a bare turf plain, he need only turn up a sod seven feet long by two feet wide, and if he succeeds in propping it on its edge, it will form a sufficient shield against the wind. In heavy gales, the neighborhood of a solitary tree is a positive nuisance. It creates a violent eddy of wind that leaves palpable evidence of its existence. Thus in cornfields, it is a common result of a storm to batter the corn quite flat in circles round each tree that stands in the field, where elsewhere no injury takes place. This very morning that I am writing these remarks, November 15, 1858, I was forcibly struck by the appearance of Kensington Gardens after last night's gale, which had covered the ground with an extraordinary amount of dead leaves. They lay in a remarkable uniform layer of three to five inches in depth, except that round each and every tree the ground was absolutely bare of leaves for a radius of about a yard. The effect was as though circular discs had been cut out leaving the edges of the layer of leaves perfectly sharp and vertical. It would have been a dangerous mistake to have slept that night at the foot of any one of those trees. Again, in selecting a place for bivouac, we must bear in mind that a gale never blows in level currents, but in all kinds of curls and eddies, as the driving of a dust storm or the vagaries of bits of straw caught up by the wind unmistakably show us. Little hillocks or undulations, combined with the general lay of the ground, are a chief cause of these eddies. They entirely divert the current of the wind from particular spots. Such spots should be looked for. They are discovered by watching the grass or the sand that lies on the ground. If the surface be quiet in one place, while all around it is agitated by the wind, we shall not be far wrong in selecting that place for our bed, however unprotected it may seem in other respects. It is constantly remarked that a very slight mound or ridge will shelter the ground for many feet behind it, and an old campaigner will accept such shelter gladly, notwithstanding the apparent insignificances of its cause. Shelter from the sky. The shelter of a wall is only sufficient against wind or driving rain. We require a roof to shield us against vertical rain and against dew, or what is much the same thing, against the cold of a clear blue sky on a still night. The temperature of the heavens is known pretty accurately by more than one method of calculation. It is minus 239 degrees Fahrenheit. 
the greatest cold felt in the Arctic regions being about minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. If the night be cloudy, each cloud is a roof to keep off the cold. If it be clear, we are exposed to the full chill of the blue sky, with only such alleviation as the warming and the non-conducting powers of the atmosphere may afford. The effect is greater than most people would credit. The uppermost layer of the earth, or whatever may be lying exposed upon it, is called upon to part with a great quantity of heat. If it so happen that the uppermost layer is of a non-conducting nature, the heat abstracted from it will be poorly resupplied by communication from the lower ones. Again, if the night be a very calm one, there will be no supply of warmth from fresh currents of air falling down upon it. Hence, in the treble event of a clear blue sky, a non-conducting soil, and a perfectly still night, we are liable to have great cold on the surface of the ground. This is shared by a thin layer of air that immediately rests upon it, while at each successive inch in height the air becomes more nearly of its proper temperature. A vast number of experiments have been made by Mr. Glazier on this subject, the upshot of which is that a thermometer laid on grass under a blue sky on a calm night marks on an average eight degrees Fahrenheit colder than one four feet above it. One inch above grass, five and one-half degrees. One foot, one degree. Four feet, one-half degree. On gravel and sand, the differences are only about one-third as much. Sheep have a practical knowledge of these differences. Often, in an early walk on dewy mornings, I see all the sheep in Hyde Park bivouacked on the gravel walks of Rotten Row. The above figures are the results of experiments made in England, where the air is always moist, and the formation of dew, while it testifies to the cold of the night, assists largely to moderate it. In arid climates, the chill would be far greater. Such would also be the cause at high elevations. One of Mr. Glazier's experiments showed a difference of no less than 28 degrees between the cold on the ground and that at eight feet high. This might often be rivaled in an elevated desert as in that of Mongolia, hence the value of the protection of a roof and of a raised sleeping place to a man sleeping under a blue sky in still weather admits of easy interpretation. Various Methods of Bivouacking unprotected. Mr. Shaw, the traveler in Tibet, says, My companion and I walked on to keep ourselves warm, but, halting at sunset, had to sit and freeze several hours before the things came up. The best way of keeping warm on such occasion is to squat down, kneeling against a bank, resting your head on the bank and nearly between your knees. Then tuck your overcoat in all around you, overhead and all, and if you are lucky, and there is not too much wind, you will make a little atmosphere of your own inside the covering, which will be snug in comparison with the outside air. Your feet suffer chiefly, but you learn to tie yourself into a kind of knot, bringing as many surfaces of your body together as possible. I have passed whole nights in this kneeling position and slept well, whereas I should not have got a wink had I been stretched at full length 
with such a scanty covering as a greatcoat. Bushes. I have shown that the main object before sleeping out at night is to secure a long, wind-tight wall, and that the next is to obtain a roof. Both these objects may be obtained by peaching two or three small neighboring bushes into one, or branches may be torn off elsewhere and interwoven between the bushes. A few leafy boughs, cut and stuck into the ground, with their tops leaning over the bed, and secured in that position by other boughs, wattled in horizontally, give great protection. Long grass, etc., should be plucked and strewn against them to make them as wind-tight as possible. Walls. A pile of saddlebags and other traveling gear may be made into a good screen against the wind, and travelers usually arrange them with that intention. Walls of stone may be built as a support to cloths, whose office it is to render the walls wind-tight, and also by lapping over their top to form a partial roof. We have already spoken of a broad sod of turf propped up on edge. The Tibetan traveler cares for no roof overhead if he can shelter himself from the wind behind a three-foot wall. Hence the numerous little enclosures clustered together like cells of a honeycomb at every halting place, with one side always raised against the prevailing wind. These walls are built around shallow pits, each with its rough fireplace in the middle. Cloths. Any cloth may be made to give shelter by an arrangement like that in the sketch. The corners of the cloth should be secured by simple hitches in the rope, and never by knots. The former are sufficient for all purposes of security, but the latter will jam, and you may have to injure both cloth and string to get them loose again. It is convenient to pin the sides of the cloth with a skewer round the ropes. Any strip of wood makes a skewer. Earth should be banked against the lowest edge of the cloth to keep out the wind and to prevent its flapping. The sticks may, on an emergency, be replaced by faggots of brushwood, by guns, or by ropes carried down from the overhanging branches of a large tree. Fremont the American traveler bivouacked as follows. His rifles were tied together near the muzzles, the butts resting on the ground widely apart. A knife was laid on the rope that tied them together to cut it in case of an alarm. Over this extempore framework was thrown a large india-rubber cloth with which he covered his packs when on the road. It made a cover sufficiently large to receive about half of his bed, and was a place of shelter for his instruments. Gordon Cumming The following extract is from Mr. Gordon Cumming's book on Africa. It describes the preparations of a practiced traveler for a short excursion from his wagons away into the bush. I had at length got into the way of making myself tolerably comfortable in the field, and from this date I seldom went in quest of elephants without the following impedimenta, that is, a large blanket which I folded and secured before my saddle as a dragoon does his cloak, and two leather sacks containing a flannel shirt, warm trousers, and a woolen nightcap, spare ammunition, washing rod, coffee, bread, sugar, pepper and salt, dried meat, a wooden bowl, and a teaspoon. 
These sacks were carried on the shoulders of the natives, for which service I remunerated them with beads. They also carried my coffee kettle, two calabashes of water, two American axes, and two sickles, which I used every evening to cut grass for my bed, and likewise for my horses to eat throughout the night. And my after-rider carried extra ammunition and a spare rifle. IMPORTANCE OF COMFORT To conclude these general hints, let the traveler, when out in trying weather, work hard at making his sleeping place perfectly dry and comfortable. He should not cease until he is convinced that it will withstand the chill of the early morning, when the heat of the yesterday's sun is exhausted, and that of the coming sun has not begun to be felt. It is wretched beyond expression for a man to lie shivering beneath a scanty covering and to feel the night air becoming hourly more raw while his life-blood has less power to withstand it, and to think, self-reproachfully, how different would have been his situation if he had simply had forethought and energy enough to cut and draw twice the quantity of firewood and to spend an extra half-hour in laboring to make himself a snugger berth. The omission, once made, becomes irreparable, for in the cold of a pitiless night he has hardly sufficient stamina to rise and face the weather, and the darkness makes him unable to cope with his difficulties. Bivouac in Special Localities Encampment in Forests a clump of trees yields wonderful shelter. The Swedes have a proverb that the forest is the poor man's jacket. In fir woods there is great facility in making warm encampments. For a young tree, when it is felled, yields both poles to support branches for shields against weather and finer cuttings for flooring above the snow or damp. A common plan is to support a crossbar by two uprights, as shown in the figure. Against this crossbar, a number of poles are made to lean. On the back of the poles, abundance of fir branches are laid horizontally, and lastly, on the back of these are another set of leaning poles, in order to secure them by their weight. On Bare Plains Avoid sleeping in slight hollows during clear, still weather. The cold stratum of air, of which I spoke in the section of Shelter from the Sky, pours down into them, like water from the surrounding plain, and stagnates. Spring frosts are always more severely felt in hollows. Therefore, in a broad, level plain, especially if the night be clear and calm, look out for some slightly rising ground for an encampment. The chilled stratum of air drains from off it, and is replaced by warmer air. Horses and cattle, as the night sets in, always draw up to these higher grounds, which rise like islands through the sea of mist that covers the plain. Walls have been built for shelter against the wind on a bare, sandy plain by taking empty bags, filling them with sand, and then building them up as if they had been stones. Buried or in holes. A European can live through a bitter night on a perfectly dry, sandy plain, without any clothes besides what he has on, if he buries his body pretty deeply in the sand, keeping only his head above ground. 
it is a usual habit of the naked natives in australia to do so and not an infrequent one of the hottentots of south africa mr moffat records with grateful surprise how he passed a night of which he had gloomy forebodings in real comfort even luxury by adopting this method a man may be as comfortable in a burrow as in a den i shall speak of underground houses under hutting and for the present will only mention that in arid countries dry wells dug by natives and partially choked by drifted sand are often met with they are generally found near existing watering places where they have been superseded by others better placed and deeper now there are few warmer sleeping places than one of these dry wells a small fire is easily kept burning at the bottom and the top may be partially roofed over in ashes of campfire a few chill hours may be got over in a plain that affords no other shelter by nestling among the ashes of a recently burnt out campfire warm carcasses in napoleon's retreat after his campaign in russia many a soldier saved or prolonged his life by creeping within the warm and reeking carcass of a horse that had died by the way by the water side a stony beach makes a fine dry encamping place and has this advantage that it makes it impossible for marauders to creep up unheard but the immediate neighborhood of fresh water is objectionable for besides being exposed to malaria and mosquitoes the night air is more cold and penetrating by its side than at one or two hundred yards distance from it by rocks in the cruel climate of tibet dr hooker tells us that it is the habit to encamp close to some large rock because a rock absorbs heat all day and parts with it but slowly during the night time it is therefore a reservoir of warmth when the sun is down and its neighborhood is coveted in the night time owing to the same cause acting in the opposite direction the shadow of a broad rock is peculiarly cool and grateful during the heat of the day in a thirsty land on heather mr st john tells us of an excellent way in which highland poachers when in a party usually pass frosty nights on the moor side they cut quantities of heather and strew part of it as a bed on the ground then all the party lie down side by side excepting one man whose place among the rest is kept vacant for him his business is to spread plaids upon them as they lie and to heap up the remainder of the heather upon the plaids this being accomplished the man wriggles and works himself into the gap that has been left for him in the midst of his comrades on snow i shall have to describe snow houses and snow walls covered with sailcloth under huts here i will speak of more simple arrangements dr kane says we afterwards learnt to modify and reduce our travelling gear and found that in direct proportion to its simplicity and to our apparent privation of articles of supposed necessity were our actual comfort and practical efficiency step by step as long as our arctic service continued we went on reducing our sledging outfit 
until we at last came to the equinox ultimatum of simplicity, raw meat and a fur bag. Lieutenant Cresswell, Royal Navy, who, having been detached from Captain McClure's ship in 1853, was the first officer who ever accomplished the famous Northwest Passage, gave the following graphic account of the routine of his journeying in a speech at Lynn. You must be aware that in Arctic traveling you must depend entirely on your own resources. You have not a single thing else to depend on except snow water, no produce of the country, nor firewood, or coals, or anything of the sort, and whatever you have to take to sustain you for the journey you must carry or drag. It is found by experience more easy to drag it on sledges than to carry it. The plan we adopt is this. We have a sledge generally manned by about six or ten men, which we load with provisions, with tents and all requisites for traveling, simple cooking utensils, spirits of wine for cooking, etc., and start off. The quantity people can generally drag over the ice is 40 days' provisions. That gives about 200 pounds weight to each. After starting from the ship, and having traveled a certain number of hours, generally 10 or 11, we encamp for the night, or rather for the day, because it is considered better to travel at night and sleep at day, on account of the glare of the sun on the snow. We used to travel journeys of about ten hours and then in camp, light our spirits of wine, put our kettle on it to thaw our snow water, and after we had had our supper, just a piece of pemmican and a glass of water, we were glad to smoke our pipes and turn into bed. The first thing we did, after pitching the tent, was to lay a sort of mackintosh covering over the snow. On this a piece of buffalo robe was stretched. Each man and officer had a blanket sewn up in the form of a bag, and into these we used to jump, much in the same way as you may see a boy do in a sack. We lay down head and feet, the next person to me having his head to my feet and his feet to my head, so that we lay like herrings in a barrel. After this we covered ourselves with skin, spreading them over the whole of us, and the closer we got the better, as there was more warmth. We lay till the morning, and then the process was the same again. It appears that people may bury themselves in snow, and want neither air nor warmth. I have never made the experiment, but have read of numerous instances of people falling into snowdrifts and not being extricated for many days, and when at length they were taken out, they never seemed to have complained of cold, or any other sufferings than those of hunger and of anxiety. End of chapter 17